Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. An alternative prison ranch in New Mexico conducts a daring experiment, setting the troubled residents out to retrain an aggressive herd of horses. The horses and prisoners both arrive at the ranch broken in one way or many. The horses often abandoned and suspicious. The residents, some battling drug and alcohol addiction, emotionally, physically, and financially shattered. Ginger Gaffney's job is to retrain the untrainable. With time, the horses and residents form a profound bond and teach each other patience, control, and uh, trust. Ginger Gaffney is a top-ranked horse trainer. She received an MFA from Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe. Her work has been published in Tin House and Utley Reader. She lives in Velarde, New Mexico. And uh, today on the program, she'll join us to talk about her memoir, Half Broke. Ginger Gaffney, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Uh, this is a fascinating book. I uh, um, appreciate being able to uh, to read it uh, and, and you telling your story uh, here. Um, so uh, I guess I want to get back into your childhood and, of course, recount the experiences in the book. Um, but uh, from horse trainer to rider, were, were those parallel things or did you, uh, uh, in the midst of horse training, decide, well, I want to write? Um, when I, uh, got out of college and I wouldn't say that I was always a writer, like a lot of writers talk about that. I would not say that I was very shy, um, and, uh, did not speak a lot, even all the way through college, pretty, pretty shy. And when I was younger, I didn't really speak till I was seven. I could speak. My parents were worried that I really couldn't speak and they did all kinds of testing on me, but I had an extreme introversion. And I had three sisters who liked to speak for me, so I never did have to speak. <laughs> um, but when I got out of college, I I just luckily kind of fell into a, a small uh, press where we did first books of poetry, and I got an internship, and I stayed with that press for about five years. And the, the two people who ran the press um, kind of took me under their wing. I think they could see that I really needed support and that's kind of when I really fell in love with language and it was poetry that kind of woke me up to language and writing um and so I've always been writing poetry this is my first nonfiction book but I tend to lean towards when I read I read poetry and nonfiction or memoirs I'm more in the, the real life kind of interests me Tremendously. So that's interesting. Uh, so what? Uh, so poetry, reading poetry, writing poetry. What? What does that do for you? Mm-hmm. You know, it is another part of that introspection when you're when you're um, kind of a quiet person like me. It, it allows you to get in, in touch with yourself in a way. Language and words are um, like the inner core of my body. Like that's how I feel language, and I think that kind of goes back to the horse training. I remember when I finished my internship with the Poetry Press, I um, I was just thinking about going to grad school then, and I said, no, you got to go and live. you got to go and live your life and get life inside you, and then you'll have something to write about. And, um, and that's kind of what happened. My life took over. I, I ended up, you know, starting to work with horses, riding horses, and uh, riding at a barn where a woman really thought I had a lot of natural talent, and... Um, it just took off from there, and it was just sort of a life of the body instead of words. Mm. And I, but I, I've been saying a long time to myself that there's a book that I'm supposed to write. You know, I'm, I'm going to be writing a book, and um, this wasn't like in like I didn't know this was the book, but I started writing it, and then I realized this was the book, and it took oh, 25 years for that book to come. <laughs> Twenty five years. In wow. The mean, in the mean, yeah. In the meantime, I wrote poetry. Yeah. You know. Well, it's 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 a fascinating book. Uh, so you said uh, it, you you didn't speak till you were you were seven. You you could speak, mm-hmm. but you chose yeah. chose not to. Why? You know, not. I'll never be able to answer that. Um, what I saw in the world around me was that language was sort of coarse and harsh and. And also, it, it also felt like it wasn't very true. And it wasn't that my family was harsh, or they were pretty much like a lot of families. They spoke over each other. We t- they talked fast and loud and, um, and gestures. And I, as a child, I just remember that I could hear everything louder through bodies, through the way people moved and all their smallest expressions. And I would read 
I would read people. Um, they might be speaking to me, but what I was listening to was how they moved and what the story was with the way they moved. And it didn't line up as a child, those two things where uh, how people were acting and physically moving and what was coming out of their mouth, it wasn't lining up. And I think I got very confused by it. Mm. Um, and it shut, it shut me down to the point where I, I just was very, uh, or pretty sullen. I don't think I was a depressed child, but I was very quiet. I was in my room a lot. And, um, and I, I just remember that when I was in groups or even in small groups, like with my sisters, I just couldn't find a way to speak. Um, and, I remember the first time I started speaking was like first grade, second grade, and it was just a few words at a time, and and that was it for a long time. It was just a few words at a time mm. until I could start putting together sentences. But I think it it scared me. Uh, language really scared me, and the way people spoke scared me. And I was um, a pretty sensitive child, like a lot of people, and I was like the introversion that makes me a really sensitive person, and then. And when things don't line up physically with the way people are talking and what they're saying, I still have, I still, when I walk in a room, I, instead of listening, I watch, you know, and that's sort of my, my safety net is like, okay, what's really happening here? Instead of what, what people are saying, what are they, what is really happening here? Mm. So it's maybe a protective device when I was a child. I'm not really sure, but it's it's not it's not that common. I've spoken to, I've spoken to a lot of uh, um, people who study language in early childhood, and they're kind of interested in my story because mo- this is not that common for a child to know how to speak and not speak. So, so this this must have been, as you say, must have been distancing because you know people yeah people are used to uh, communicating in speech, and they yeah. I guess probably wanted you to do the same. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty isolated. Yeah. I, you know, I felt very isolated, and something I've had to to um, work on for a long, long time is to not be so isolated in that way. Mm. So, yeah. so you uh, you um, you were more comfortable watching people, body movement. Um, yeah. So, and you you say that that's, I guess, fortunately, you got into. Uh, Working with animals, you say that's how horses yeah. uh, deal. That's how horses communicate. Uh, you uh, tell me yeah. about your first horse. You talk about her. Her name was Belle. Yeah, she was um, Belle. She was an American saddlebred, um, big, huge chestnut horse, and um, she was at a barn, a saddlebred barn, and they had they they had done some things with her that really uh, kind of ruined her and. She was just a nervous wreck, and they were selling her for almost nothing. Um, and really, I should have never gotten Belle. I mean, she was way more horse than I should have taken on. Um, and, you know, I see that a lot now in my horse training. A lot of people pick a horse that's really just not a good fit. And I remember when the veterinarian came out to do the, the you know, the vet test before I bought her, she was like, no, do not buy this horse. So I didn't listen to her, and I, I bought Belle. And um, real nervous, real flighty, um, had a lot of issues with her mouth. Somebody had probably, she was two and a half, and they probably started her under saddle in some kind of rough way with her mouth, and so you couldn't put much in her mouth or get anywhere near her face, and she would pull back and break ropes and break out of halters. And um, So there was a lot of work to do, and I had a wonderful neighbor, um, a, a, a man named Bob Bright, and he... He helped me uh, really work with her. He was, we were in North Carolina at the time, and he was just one of those men that's been around animals his whole life. He was also, like, in World War II, so he was really much older than me, and he just had a way, and he taught me how to be gentle around her face and her mouth. And we started riding her right about three or four months after we got her, and he just put a, a halter on her that he made from all his old rawhide. And we rode her, I rode her, um, pretty much, without anything in her mouth for almost three years. Um, so she she taught me so much. Um, she was an amazing, amazing animal. I would say that it was a one-on-one relationship. I don't know if it would have gone well with, it, with us, anybody, but it was a relationship that she and I, I decided to let her lead and be the leader of that relationship. 
and I would just follow her lead, that's what made it work. If I had tried to dominate her in any way, we would have never gotten along. And so that I had I'd ridden and worked with horses for a long time. Belle was the first horse where I had to let everything go and say, "You tell me what I need to do," and that has totally made my horse training career work for me because I can take each animal as an individual. I learned from Belle that they're each individuals, and people who work with animals know this. You know, we cannot make them all the same thing, and some trainers try to, but my my career has always been about meeting the individual horse. What are their issues? Um, what are their strengths? And try to really work inside that context instead of what I need them to be, you mm. know. And so Belle, Belle was my first horse in that way that taught me everything. And, of course, it was I had already known a lot about body language. Um, so working with horses for me is just a pretty natural thing. I can see things very quickly, and I think that probably also helped me with my career with horses is, I never had to learn how to listen with the body. I already knew how to do it, mm. you know. Do you, yeah. Before we get into horses, and you write fascinatingly about horses and interactions with humans, uh, I do have this question. You you grew up uh, mm-hmm. trusting body language and inter- interaction with, uh, you know, your fellow human beings. Do you still do? Do you mm-hmm. trust that more than, than language? Yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I still find it's a, it's a truth teller. You know, and, you know, as you're talking with someone in I mean, say, you know, a very confident person is in front of you. And I was at the airport yesterday and I saw this man walking down, you know, we were in Dallas, Fort Worth, and he was talking really loud and he was walking really big and um, gesturing loudly on his phone. And the, the only thing I saw was how sad he looked like he I, I kept I looked at him and he was all these things that the world thought he was, he was showing, you know, his confidence, and I had the overwhelming feeling of sadness. And I, those are the kinds of things, now I can't tell you why he was that, or what I, I could, what I saw, but I saw it, and I saw the compensation, and um, I think that's what we do as humans, because we're all coming from something, right? We all come from, from some pain and some, some joy and from different places in our lives that have taught us what our story is, and they come through our bodies. And I can feel that in people so quickly, and I have a lot of compassion. I don't really um, have any issues with people because I have so much more compassion for what the story behind the story, you know, what we are in terms of our physical presence and what we present to the world, and then there's the story behind that story. And um, uh, I can feel it. I can see it. Um, So... I go on that. That's my first go-to, you know, yeah. my, is what happens when I see somebody. Hmm. Now, this is skipping yeah. This is skipping ahead, and I want to kind of, kind of keep this, linear. but I want to bring this in because we're talking about body and body language. Um, yeah. You've said that, uh, you know, the, at the ranch there, and we'll get into the ranch a little later, um, a lot of a lot of uh, addicts, long term uh, addicts, and drug addiction can yeah. be so so you know powerful and and, uh, and shattering. Um, you you said that um, a lot of addicts are are disembodied. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Yeah. Well, we we know uh, you know so many of us see you know people who are on the streets now that are addicted and are uh, begging for money or food or wherever we see all over our communities. We all see them, you know, and you can see that they are crumpled human beings. You know, they're pale. They have no strength in their body. They're looking down. They're not meeting you in the eye. Um, they're hunched over. Um, that it's a very you know common visual scene now in our communities, and that's not the person that is inside that body. That's the addiction that is that body right now. And when the addiction starts to recover, when the people start to recover from addiction, they get circulation. They get uh, uh, oxygen. They get um, the ability to look up. Um, so their whole body starts to transform into the person that they really, really are. So that's, in my experience, re- the first step in recovery is recovering the body. Because how can the brain heal 
you know, how does the brain heal? Because we talk about it being a brain disease. Um, how can the brain heal if the body isn't healing too? And my, I just witnessed that so much with people in recovery. It's the first thing you start seeing is how they're, how they start to move a little differently, how they start to look up, how the, how they start to talk, how loud they are, or how soft, you know, um, how their voice changes, and it's like a. Um, a makeover. It's like a, a human being makeover when they come out of addiction and into recovery and you get to start seeing their, them as the physical people they once were. But it's the first, in my experience, it's the first step towards recovery is letting the body recover mm. from the addiction. I want to uh, I want to read. This is from uh, this is from the book. By the way, we're talking with Ginger Gaffney. Her uh, her book is half broke. It's a it's a memoir. Uh, out from W.W. W. Norton. Um, so, from the book, uh, people say that horses mirror their owners. To protect themselves, horses become you. They blend themselves to the inside of a person, emotional camouflage. That's, uh, I, I had never thought of it uh, that way. Uh, therefore, as a horse <laughs> trainer, you, you're, <laughs> you're a human trainer too, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we always talk about how, uh, like a dog, can look just like a person, you know, like, oh my gosh, that's that person and that dog, they look exactly alike. And it, it it's an interesting thing with horses, they do, they, in order to survive the experience of us, and that's the way they do with each other, you know, they're just, uh, they're, they're looking, they're watching and looking at each other all the time, they're looking for the smallest movements, all the language is so subtle, but in the herd. And so then we, then they're presented with this very loud thing that is a human being, and we aren't very subtle. We're not so subtle with not our voices, but our bodies can be very loud in the way we move. And so horses get a little bit uh, uh, ultra-sensitive to that, right? And so they watch us, and over time they become us. They become that subtle language that we are. They transfer it onto themselves in order to, for it to go well. So that they, because horses do not want to be in charge. That's the, not everybody talks about the leader of the herd. That's the most stressful position for a horse is to be in charge. They're the ones in charge of keeping the herd safe. They have to be on alert all the time. So horses would rather be number two, number three, number four, number ten in the herd. And so when they're with humans, they're trying to, to figure out their number. And uh, with our body language, they try to mimic it and understand it so that they can place themselves in contact with us. Um, and... So that's what I, that's how I see it, them as a mirror, as they watch us so intently that they pretty much become us. And that's what happened over at the ranch. The horses started to becoming more like the people who are, uh, you know, have a lifetime of struggle, a lifetime of addiction and being in and out of prison and incredible life stories. The horses started to be the sponge of those stories. Mm. Let's take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll uh, tell the story of how you came to to be at the ranch, and uh, then and what ha- what you encountered, and then what what happened. Uh, if, ho- if horses mm-hmm. are mirroring the people, and the people are very troubled, uh, as you write in the book, the horses were very troubled at that that point as well. Uh, but let's uh, let's take a break before we get into that. We're talking uh, with Ginger Gaffney. Uh, she's a top-ranked horse trainer. She received an MFA from the Institute of American Indian Arts in uh, Santa Fe. Uh, she's written a lot of poetry, she said earlier in the uh, program. Uh, this is her uh, first uh, nonfiction book. It's a memoir, Half Broke. Um, and uh, we're having her tell the story for us on Access Utah today. More following this break. Utah legislative coverage on UPR is made possible by our members and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with 226,000 members in Utah, helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing materials, programs, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org UT. Utah Public Radio has partnered with the Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative to bring you Debunked the podcast that debunks myths about harm reduction and addiction while bringing you the most up-to-date, evidence-based information regarding the opioid crisis. I'm your host, Tim Light. Utah is in a crisis. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, over the last 20 years, Utah has experienced a 223% increase in overdoses due to opioids. During 2017, the death toll rose to 456 people, 
That's more than one person per day. It's also more than all other deaths by accidents combined, even more than car accidents. It's time to further and expand the conversation about harm reduction and the opioid crisis here in Utah. Join me for the first episode that will be released on Wednesday, February 12th, 2020. You can find Debunked at upr.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're uh, talking about a fascinating uh, new memoir. It's called Half Broke, uh, written by writer and horse trainer uh, Ginger Gaffney. Um, and in the book, she tells the story of uh, an alternative prison ranch in New Mexico that conducts a daring experiment, sending the troubled residents out to retrain an aggressive herd of horses. The horses and prisoners both arrive at the ranch broken in one way or many. Ginger Gaffney is... Uh, called in to uh, to help the uh, the situation so ginger gaffney the, the, the tell us about this this ranch uh, first of all this seems like a uh, reading a little bit about the the ranch it seems uh, very interesting it's it's actually run by the the, the inmates right there there, there are no guards yes, it is. yeah yeah there are no guards there are, is no paid staff um, if uh, your listeners are uh, familiar with the Lancy Street Foundation it is one of the uh, facilities that Delancey Street runs in the United States, and it's um, started in the uh, Delancey Street started in San Francisco, and um, they basically they figured out that the working inside the prison and doing therapies and having um, all kinds of uh, counseling and things in the prison just wasn't working. There was still a great amount of recidivism, and there was a woman named Mimi Siebert who was a psychologist, and she moved uh, out of the prison and started bringing people who were coming out of prison, and she, uh, they bought a house, they moved into a community in San Francisco, and she started, they all started working together. Uh, this house was in a neighborhood, and they would go in the neighborhood and, and work on people's houses and help people with their lawns, and, you know, and it, it bloomed from that to this huge organization that is now in like its 50th year, um, and they have facilities all a few of around the country, maybe seven others besides San Francisco and L.A. and Los Angeles. Um, so we have a, a Delancey Street Foundation has their ranch across the Rio Grande from me, and that's the place where this book takes place. It's the only facility that's owned by Delancey Street that has horses. And so um, everybody there is... Uh, Brought there, it's like a prison resentencing facility. You have to apply from prison and, and be interviewed three different times to see if you're a good fit. And they have lots of people applying, of course, but not everybody wants to uh, will make it because Delancey Street really demands that you you really work. You work all day long. You have long days. They have a whole industries uh, to make their own money, so they're not government funded, so they can operate on a, uh, a different protocol. Um, and that's what's different about being over there is there, it is an insulated community. Not too many people get to go onto their ranch. And um, it's a facility that re- works on uh, each one, teach one. So when you come onto the ranch from prison, you already have a mentor who's been there a little longer, and then they teach you a trade. And then in four months or six months, another person will teach you another trade. And after you're there for about a year, you become a teacher for the new people who come in from prison. So everybody is teaching each other, and it's, a, it's really about bringing themselves up from the rock bottom instead of having people um, from the outside, like doctors and psychiatrists, bringing them up. It's about bringing each other up. And they, they talk about it like a house, like a family, so they exist in a community. And it's a pretty isolated community. They stay, stay there from two to five years. Um, but that's how it's run, and there is absolutely no paid staff. So it's all run that way, and they make all their own money um, to support themselves. So there is no government funding. So you can see it's a really different kind of setup. Mm. Um, and then and then I walked in because mm-hmm. the horses, they, they had nobody that knew much about the horses, and the horses had been, like I said, really um, affected by being contained on this 17 acres with about a hundred residents from, you know, different residents, some from prison, but all of them drug, 
drug addicts and recovering drug addicts and prostitutes and some murderers. There's some pretty um, uh, difficult situations over there that people are recovering from, and here are these horses that are living on the ranch with them. And there's not a good uh, each one teach one process with the horses because nobody knew anything about the horses, so the knowledge about how to be with them never got passed down. Um, and so for years, many, many years, these horses in my book, but also many horses prior to my book, have come onto the ranch and have had the same experience these horses have, because I've heard from other people who've been on the ranch years ago about the horses, say, 20 years ago. And if not, it's not an uncommon thing for the horses to be aggressive and to be hurting people. And so when I came in, I had to set up a system so that I could teach the residents to teach them so that they can start the process of each one, teach one with the horses, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, uh, yeah, it's quite the situation you walked into, because as we've been saying, the horses will mirror the humans they're with, and if the humans are are troubled and they don't know how to work with horses, uh, a lot of horses were aggressive at that point. Uh, What, um, I guess, biting and... And yeah. uh, not a good situation. Yeah. Um, no, so, no, no, it wasn't. <laughs> what, what did what did you what what did you do? This is this is an extreme situation. Well, always like we talked about, there always is a leader in a, in the herd, and so I had to figure out who the leader was. Um, and uh, that, even the residents pretty much told me, but you could see it. It was a horse named Hawk. It was a big, big horse. Um, I guess he came to the ranch because. He was owned by a woman who was an alcoholic, and she would ride him up in the mountains here in New Mexico, and who knows what she was doing with him, but being, you know, being an alcoholic, I'm sure he he was probably fighting for his life to try to survive whatever she was riding, and eventually she um, just so-called donated him to the ranch. A lot of the horses come as as free horses, and in the horse world, we always say there's never, there's no such thing as a free horse. Because it's not that just that we have to feed them, but usually they come with a lot of issues when people try to give them away. So this horse, uh, he he was a survivor, and and he was going to survive, and he he ran the whole herd. And so any time people came out, like say there's about a hundred people at the time, and they were taking their trash out from breakfast, lunch, and dinner, they moved from the kitchen hall to where the garbage was, and they had to go walk through the pasture to get there. And as soon as they would come out, the horses would all lift their heads up and and run across the pasture, Hawk leading the group, and and run the trash carriers down and grab whatever scraps <laughs> that they could, like an old loaf of bread or the ramen noodles, and run off, knock some people over. People would drop their, their trash bags and, and run off, and then the horses would run off with the trash in their mouth. That was the first thing I saw. And I could not believe what I was seeing. I had never seen horses act like that. Um, and so I realized that I had to change one horse at a time and, um, and try to set up the typical relationship, which I said is most horses do not want to be number one. They want to be number two. And here we had a whole herd of horses acting like number one. And um, so I ended up having to take Hawk and work with him in the round pen and that's pretty much the first scene in the book is what happened when I worked with Hawk and, and how aggressive he was and how I had to try to establish very simply and without doing anything aggressive and um, uh, anything too physical with him, that I was the leader, that he is okay. He does not have to be the leader anymore, that I am your leader and that humans can be leaders and that was the first thing I had to establish, and I had to establish with all the horses, but when I, what, Hawk was my first one, and it was a very dangerous situation. Uh, not the worst situation I've ever been in with a horse, but close, you know. And the, yeah. inevitably, you're going to be working with the, the residents or inmates, right? You, you say, I want to quote yeah. this, you say, if you want these horses to respect you, you'll have to respect yourself. The horses, yeah. uh, if you are truly honest about how you feel, your body will show it, and the, the horses will know the difference. So and the, these are, a lot, yeah. many of them are addicts, who are, as we've talked yeah. about before, are disembodied, uh, not in touch yeah. with themselves, um, just learning about accountability and honesty. 
Um, yes. So that, how did you work with the with the residents? Well, the, the first thing was, like I said, if we if we don't project our body language in such a way that the horses can respect it, me because we know they're watching it, right? They're watching every little thing. And so the way we walk is, is, especially people in addiction, the way I spoke of in our communities, we can see them. And over at the ranch, you see it. They are slumped over. They're shuffling along. Um, you know, their heads turned down, no eye contact. And, and that's some of them. Those are the ones that, you know, are pretty beaten. And then there are the others that are just angry. And they're walking really loudly, big steps, talking really loud, arms waving around, shouting at people, all a variety of body language on the ranch, and particularly in this with group of people that I was working with, that I had to, to adjust. I had to start teaching them how to be in their body so that the horses would see them differently and it would start to change. So the first thing I did was work on their walking, how they were going to walk um, across the ranch, how they were going to walk around the horses, and uh and that they thought they thought I was ridiculous, you know. They thought I was just like this little woman who didn't know what she was doing. Until you know, until I, you know, they saw me with Hawk, and they saw what I could do, and they started to respect me more, and started to take my advice. And so a lot of it, even now, a lot of it is, I take usually I take one of their hands, we hold hands, and we walk, and and they I pretend I'm the horse, and they're the the, the leader. And I teach them how to be a leader and with their body language. Um, and so that's the first step, because if they're next to a horse and they don't have that language, then the horse is either going to be defensive around them or they're going to try to take over because they don't have confidence in them. And so we're, we're constantly working on, on that. And it's, a, it's great work for people in recovery because here's this animal that all of a sudden who wasn't trusting you and now you're changing and you're becoming a, a, a confident leader, an honest, confident leader. And all of a sudden, this horse over a period of a few weeks starts to trust you. And for some people, and a lot of people over there, that's the first animal or any living being that's ever trusted them. And mm. it's just this huge confidence builder that they, they grow. They grow. The people over there grow so fast with this work because they have so much to lose. And they're so willing to try to get on with their lives. And, and the horses are such a good intermediary for that, not having to just do it with humans, but to do it with an animal that's that large and who will show you that kind of trust. You know, it's a big, it's a big deal for a lot of people. I was struck by uh, you, you gave a interview with the, with the publisher, W.W. Norton, um, mm-hmm. and they asked you about uh, your perception of the criminal justice system and how that's mm-hmm. changed and you you said it it has working you know on the, on the ranch you said something very mm-hmm. very interesting you say that uh, people have been institutionalized people have been in the prison system a long time can kind of get mm-hmm. get used to that you know it's not a great place to be but at least at least the, the it's it's a known quantity right but and the, the yeah. and you say that uh, people really have to want to really have to want to leave that system they really it, it takes a lot to to to, to go back to real life yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and I only know that because I've I've been working with people who've spent a lot of time in prison, and they tell me that because I have not spent that time. But they they tell me that that it's it's a system that in some ways is easy. You know, they don't have to do anything all day, watch TV, uh, get fed, don't have to go to work. Um, it, in some ways, it's easy. You have to. It's not easy in terms of the dynamic inside prison and how dangerous it is if you don't follow. The rules of the prison, and that's not even the rules of the guards. It's the prisoners who run the prisons. There's that's the truth of it. And you, there's a lot of rules inside prison that if you don't follow them, you're dead. Um, but so, but that, but you have to want to change. And a lot of times, you have to hit rock bottom. And a lot of people over at Delancey Street have hit rock bottom, and they are ready to change, and they're ready to work at it. Um, and it's a it's hard work. This I always tell everybody that. You should be proud of yourself. And they're like, what do you mean? I'm an addict and my life's a mess. And I'm like, this is the hardest thing you'll ever do in your whole life, and you should be proud of yourself for doing it, you know. Mm. So. Uh, so tell me tell me about uh, some of the, the people. By the way, in the, I think you changed the names in the, in the book. Uh, but, uh, I did. But, but, you know, they're based on real people. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, a couple of the people. Um, well, one of the 
characters in the book is Eliza. She's one of the, um, the people who I'm still close with now. Um, and when I first met her, she just got into the ranch maybe um, three or four months before I started with the horses. And she was um, very depressed and never looked up, uh, hunched over, never spoke. Um, and two other women, the two women who um, called me to ask me to come and help, they kind of took her under their wing and they brought her onto the horse program. We had to fight to get her onto the program because she was, uh, you know, uh, I wouldn't say suicidal, but they were afraid she was going to be suicidal. And so they were trying to help her because they were considering having to move her to another facility because she was that far um, gone. And and so when she first came, she's a big woman, uh, tall, broad, beautiful woman. And when she first came into the horse program, she had that habit of twirling all her hair on her next to her uh, scalp on the side of her face. She would pull it all out. She pulled out all her eyelashes. She had she had a lot of neurotic behaviors and she would just be like looking at the ground and I'd be like, Eliza, look up, you know, and I'd have to keep pushing her because she would just go away. She would leave. And eventually, slowly, you know, I got, we got her to interact with the horses. And one of the big moments of Eliza's life is when she had to actually um, pick up a horse's hoof and hold on to it and try to help this horse named Willie help him learn to be more still and stable. And Eliza's this big, strong woman. And it was a miracle the day that she was able to pick up Willie's hoof, hold it up, and Willie began to trust her. Um, And in that, Eliza, all I can imagine is that her body changed because she started um, looking up. She formed almost complete sentences. Within a couple weeks, she was actually talking. And... um, and to this day now, she, she, it, it had so much impact on her life that when she got out of, a, out of the land, she, she spent five years there. When she got out, she, she interned with a, a, a horse farrier, a horse shoer. And so to this day, that is part of her profession is that she trims horses' uh, foots, uh, hooves for a living just because it had such a big impact on her, to her, her recovery. Um, so it's like I keep going back to the body because that's what I witnessed, that the horses just make the change in the body first, and then the brain starts to find itself, um, the neurological pathways start to open up to the brain um, for, for people who have been that, that, that far in addiction. What's the, is it a pretty good percentage of people coming out of uh, Delancey Street who managed to change their lives and... Uh, yeah, go, they have go to a the mainstream? much lower they have a much lower recidivism rate than than most other recovery centers, and also from prison, they have a really high rate of success, meaning that people stay out, don't go back to prison, don't go back to using. They, they you know they reintegrate into society, so they they are known for that. Delancey Street is a model that we should be looking at as a way to deal with our addiction crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, do prison crisis. Do uh, some of the former residents do they, I don't know, keep in touch with horses? Not necessarily the horses at the at the ranch, but they they stay in that culture. You you mentioned Eliza, who's yeah. who become a farrier, but yeah, yeah. Then another um, resident is um, volunteering at a um, like a therapeutic riding facility. I have another. I have another uh, student from Delancey Street that's staying in the horse part. It's 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 some of them aren't some of them are but they they could and some of them got jobs down in Albuquerque, New Mexico, working at different barns because um, they could they know how to handle horses they know how to take care of horses um, they some of them have become very good riders and can train a little bit can ride horses exercise horses so um, maybe maybe four or five since I've been there have stayed in the horse trade or are making a living at it but. Um, but I talked to all of them, and they all, I mean, I still am close with many of them, and they all talk about the horses being the biggest part of their transformation. Mm. Mm. Well, let's take another break. Uh, when we come back, I want to talk about uh, the, the effect of all of this on, on you. Uh, you write that this this okay. was this was life-changing for you as well, this experience. Okay. Um, we're talking with Ginger Gaffney. She's a horse trainer and rider 
and uh, the new memoir is called Half Broke. We'll have more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cash Venue presenting Wine and Paint Night on February 5th at 7 p.m. taught by local artist Jennifer Lemon. Dessert, canvas, brushes, and art supplies included. Cocktails and mocktails available. All ages welcome, 119 South Main, Logan. Information at thecashvenue.com. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Utah's 2020 legislative session is in full swing and there can be a lot to watch. Visit upr.org or tune into our station from now until March to keep up to date with what's happening on Capitol Hill. All of our legislative coverage can be found on our website under the programming tab. Just look for the section 2020 Utah legislative session. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, uh, hearing uh, from Ginger Gaffney. She's a horse trainer and writer, and her fascinating uh, new memoir is called Half Broke. Um, Ginger Gaffney, uh, question about why, why is it called Half Broke? Um, you know, broke is the word we used to use for um, horse training, you know, and that that is not a word we use anymore because we don't really break those horses um we you know we gentle them we assimilate them into the human world um but uh half half broke is the way those horses were when i met them they they were dangerous and had been probably submitted to some of the older horse training methods um and so they were just about broken and similarly, that's true of the people that their lives were, uh, you know, on that edge of being per- permanently uh, in prison or suicidal or, you know, over- overdose. They were very close to the edge themselves. Um, and But they aren't, you know, they aren't broke. Um, they you know, Half broke means there's hope. And um, and I, I really believe there's there's always hope. And addiction is not not a terminal thing, um, and so that that just being half broke was the truth of it, you know. And I wanted to use a, a phrase that comes from the horse language, of the, you know, how we talk about horses, and and uh, and as well as the residents there. Mm. Uh, I want to quote another, uh, uh, just a couple sentences from the book. Um, you say, I've spent my whole life feeling like I was odd, queer, different. Mm-hmm. None of that is true now. None of it. It never was. So th- this uh, this yeah. experience had a, a profound effect on you. T- tell me about that. I, I think, in general, I never really feel that safe in the human you know, world. It's not like from a childhood, from my isolated childhood, to uh, wondering about my gender when I was young, um, and also finding out about my sexuality as, you know, in my 20s, discovering that I was a queer person, that, you know, all of those things make me feel kind of unsafe in the world, um, not normal, not, what, not you know. It's, it's a little easier now with the cultures that we live in that are a little more accepting, but as I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, it didn't feel that way to me. I always felt like the odd person out, along with my extreme introversion. I was pretty isolated, um, and and so when I went to the ranch, everywhere around me, I kind of saw myself. I saw I used to walk like, like that. That I used to walk with my head to the ground. I I really never spoke. I never met people in the eye. Um, I never had the kind of hardships that the people at the ranch have had. I'm not equating myself with them, and it took a while for me to want to put myself in the book because I really didn't want to be the story. I was. I never felt like I wanted the book to be about me, but I was encouraged to by so many people that that was like the last part of the book that I really finished and put into the book. Um, 
just put myself there because it's the truth. I was, I was, I was. Uh, by the time I started going over to the ranch, within a month of being there, I had this overwhelming feeling like I wanted to be there all the time, and I w- I couldn't figure out what was why. It wasn't like a place that was a normal place to want to be. It's a pretty scary place. It's not the best place to feel safe. And at the same time, I started feeling like I belonged there, that I had something in common, that I was really not the the, the odd gal anymore. I was, I was, I could fit in somewhere. And the truth of it is, is that over at the ranch, everybody's trying their best to be a better human being. And it's so visceral. And there's so many rules around how to behave over there that keep us from uh, seeing ourselves as separate individuals that, that were really a community. And so um, at the ranch, you, you're in a bubble, and it's a very safe, uh, lovely bubble of people trying to be the best human beings they can be. And I just wanted to be there all the time. And in that way, I was starting to get healed myself. Like maybe if I could do that and feel that there, Maybe I could feel that elsewhere. Maybe I can feel that inside my family, inside my neighborhood, um, at my job, you know. And so that's how it started happening for me. I realized that I was, I was healing too, you know, mm-hmm. in the process. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's wonderful. And has that continued? This, is, this has been yeah, it, Yeah, it has. I, some time. I, I have, a, I have a, a job in, I stay close to... to recovery because it feels like a place where I really uh, need to be. Um, so I'm working with, with more people in recovery at another facility now, and I still have my training business. And so for me, I think it's still a safe place. It's still a place of growth for me. And I find myself like, I mean, here I am talking to you. This is not something I would have been, you know, really able to do a few years ago. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um I know writing this book, becoming public, is a is a big challenge. But I want I want to hold all the things that I learned f- from being at the ranch. I want to take them with me where I go now, and and uh, hopefully you know inspire that kind of sense of community that we can in all our differences. Because my gosh, I have so many differences than the people at the ranch. But in all our differences, we could create spaces for ourselves to 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 really appreciate each other mm. and all our differences, you know, more than more than anything, our differences make us more interesting. You know. Yeah, just have a couple minutes left, and I, I really want to uh, have you talk about this. You, I was reading a, uh, another interview that you gave, and they asked you about um, your your perceptions of addiction. You know, be, be, before going to Delancey mm-hmm. Street and after. And then, uh-huh. and then you talked very movingly and compared, uh, you know, the addiction epidemic in certain places, including a place where you live, to the AIDS epidemic. Why don't you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Well, I mean, I lived through the AIDS epidemic, and a lot of men I know, women I know, have passed away. And during that time, um, early on, anyhow, uh, there was a lot of shaming going on, and when back then it was the same thing. You saw the, you saw the people dying. They were they were thin, they were gray, um, they were sick, uh, so sick, and and at the same time we kept shaming them, you know, and culturally just shaming them for something that they were blamed for for their illness, right? And when I when I walk through my community, when I drive through my community, which is in the Española Valley here in New Mexico, which is a a large percentage of addiction, we've been dealing with addiction for four generations. Um, same, same look on the people, skinny, pale, sullen, and all of a sudden I realized because I, I I was not a a soft-hearted person around addiction. I I felt like people I've been robbed five times. My all my tack has been stolen. Um, you know, I I didn't have a soft heart. I thought that people who were addicts were um, lazy, and uh, and you know just. Not a, not a good feeling for that, and um, and all of a sudden I started going through my community while I was working at Delancey Street with the horses, and I started seeing what what addiction really is, and it's nobody's fault. Nobody should be shamed for it, um, and it, it brought me back to those memories of going through the AIDS epidemic in the, in the 80s and how I lost so many friends, 
and how how much we were all shamed for being gay then and um so it 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 came to me but it came to me slowly and um you know and i was never somebody who felt really strongly about addiction until i sort of had that awakening and working at the ranch really helped me see the people behind the addiction and now i can't not see it the other way like when i drive down the road and i see somebody i know what i'm looking at is not the the person that's the addiction that's not the human being that I'm looking at. That's the addiction. Yeah, that that's certainly true. Uh, I, I've experienced that as well. It's, uh, but it can be, uh, you know, it can be difficult sometimes to to mm-hmm. make that transition in your mind, right? That 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 person is not their yeah. addiction. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. If we could, if we could start seeing that more, and I think we are, as as my community is, um, and I think is less. Um, shaming going on around addiction now because we realize what what happened and why we're at this point with the opioid crisis. I think we're understanding how it happened. We do have no, still have no clue how to get out of this, but we know now how it happened, you know. Yeah. Well, we're, we've reached the end of our time. The The book is a fascinating book. Highly recommend it to Half Broke. It's a new memoir from Ginger Gaffney. You can find out more about Ginger Gaffney at, uh, at her website, uh, which is uh, gingergaffney.com. Uh, well, uh, thank you for the book and uh, the great work that you're doing, uh, Ginger Gaffney. Thank you so much. Thank you. On the next... Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll get into the hypnotic groove of African blues and trace its origins back to West Africa and the Southern Sahara. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join us for African Blues, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. What does Utah Public Radio mean to you? You can answer that question by entering the annual UPR Art Mug Contest. We want to see your most creative interpretations and appreciations of UPR, our programming, or our station's home here in Utah. From now until Valentine's Day, we'll be accepting submissions, and then you'll all get to vote on your favorite design. The winner will be printed on this year's Spring Pledge Drive mug. For more details, go to upr.org, and to submit, just send your designs to me, katie.swain at usu.edu. A conflict with Iran. We caught a total monster, and we took him out. A new Mideast peace plan. Today, Israel has taken a giant step toward peace. A contentious impeachment trial. They're impeaching me. You know why? Because they want to win an election. President Trump will have a lot to cover when he addresses a joint session of Congress. I'm Audie Cornish. Join us for live special coverage of the 2020 State of the Union from NPR News. Tuesday evening at 7, right here on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.